Today we're, uh, we're, we're finishing up this series on the table. Now, last week, uh, we spent some time uh, looking at, uh, you, you kind of, you can't go through, obviously, the, the idea of the table throughout scriptures without focusing in on one particular table, the Lord's table. And this is this special meal Jesus gave to his followers uh, to remember him and, and kind of experience him and connect with him. It's this kind of incredible meal. And we looked last week at what's sometimes called the Last Supper uh, because it's when Jesus was eating with his followers for the last time and he takes this, this Passover meal and he, and he just kind of re-centers it around himself and gives it to his followers. We sometimes call it the Last Supper. But in some ways, it's all, we could almost call it the first supper because it's the first time his followers would celebrate it and, it and it gave rise to this now new meal that Jesus gave to his followers. It's been celebrated uh, throughout all centuries uh, by all Christ followers in all kinds of different ways and it brings us all together. So we looked last week at what that first last supper or the first first supper, what that looked like. You know, what was the context now that took place in this meal context? Now today, what we're going to look at today is how did, after Jesus gave his followers this meal, how did his earliest followers uh, celebrate and sort of understand and, and practice this, this meal? And we're going to look at what this looked like amongst those first followers because in lots of ways... Uh, it was a, a fairly kind of front-center deal for them, as we'll see. And it spoke of so much. And it kind of carried with it this incredible, uh, almost, it's like it almost just did something in their midst. And we're just going to look at, if this is how his, his earliest followers celebrated it, uh, then how might this speak to the ways that we celebrate it today? Because our... our our heart's desire, our dream as church is always to allow the scriptures to speak into what it means to be the church and to constantly try and return to the picture of the church that we see in the pages of scripture. So we're going to start. I want to read to you. We're going to start this way. I want to read to you from Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, this is really just, you know, kind of within months of Jesus. He, he died. He rose again. He ascended. His followers had all been gathered. And uh, at the beginning of Acts chapter 2, this incredible moment, we call it Pentecost, happened where uh, God poured out the Holy Spirit on his followers for the first time. Jesus had told them the Spirit's going to come. They're all waiting. The Spirit gets poured out, and it really kind of gives birth. This is the original almost kind of birthday of the church, Jesus' followers. And, uh, and so they, this now snapshot we get in Acts chapter 2 is what, like these first followers, here's what, you know, sort of being the church looked like in their lives. It's a great snapshot. If you've been around church for a while, you'll be familiar. And if you've never been around church, this right here is, it was kind of like how it all got started. It's what it was like. It's what it was all about. And it's this incredible picture. So we're going to read it together. Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 42. It says this. This is what those early followers did. It says they devoted themselves they devoted themselves. This is what was important to them. This is what they were kind of all about. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to, the, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, I want to pause here for a second. They devoted themselves to a few things we see here. The apostles' teaching. Now, the apostles, these were Jesus, you know, really at this point, these were the people who kind of journeyed with him, guys like Peter and John. They walked with Jesus. They're teaching now what it, who Jesus is and all that 
Jesus had taught them, they're now teaching everyone, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. For us, the apostles' teaching has been recorded and written in, in the New Testament for us to also uh, be able to, to tap into, to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. So that was the first thing. And then to fellowship, and fellowship speaks to this, this sense of community among them. This sense of, of togetherness, of oneness, of, of, you know, sometimes we think fellowship. If you've been around, you know, church for a while, sometimes think fellowship means like we have a bit of cake together. Fellowship was so much more than that. Fellowship was this incredible depth of relationship and common sharing of life and, and all kinds of things together. So they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now prayer, we get, you know what that is? This is, you know, praying to God, connecting with God through prayer, talking to him. God, we talk to God, he talks to us. The other, this fourth one, the breaking of bread, is one that we're going to key in today. One of the four things we right away that they devoted themselves to. So these were the things they devote themselves to. And watch what happens as they give themselves these things. It says, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. They're filled with awe. They're just these incredible things taking place. Just incredible things like never before seen. Everybody's filled with awe at all these things happening. And it says, all the believers, in verse 44, all the believers, they were together. Again, fellowship, common, together. See this theme. And not only together, gathering together, they had everything in common. And they, 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 they shared everything. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. This early picture of the church. It's like if, if I've got something and if you've got a need, they just, they just sold it and just would give to anyone who had a need. In verse 46, it says, And every day, here's what they did. Every day they continued to meet together, 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 in the temple courts, so where they were in, in, in Jerusalem at this point was this kind of Jewish temple, and that was the faith they had all come out of. And so they continued to meet there, and it says that they broke bread in their homes. Here's our phrase again for today. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together, table, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, Praising God, so much joy, glad hearts. Praising God, God, you know, speaking of how amazing God is. And enjoying the favor of all the people. As they live like this, they enjoy the favor of all the people. It's like all the people like, man, these guys, there is something unique. There's something distinct. And everyone just, this is so good. So they're enjoying the favor, people thinking well of them, of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily. Every day, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. New people, favoring all the people. New people constantly being added, going, yes, I am in on this. This is Jesus you're worshiping. This life you've, you've begun, I want in on this. Now I want to pray as we start. This is a snapshot. This is this picture of Acts chapter 2. Uh, this is, this is the, the, the kind of early snapshot. This is what the church is to be all about. I want to just pray for us today as we dig into this, as we kind of ask the questions together, Lord, you know, how, how, do we, how do we live this dynamic, incredible picture out today? Let's pray. Lord, I just pause right now. 
And we just, um, we marvel at this, this body of people you created called the church. We marvel at this snapshot of what that life looked like of your earliest followers. And Lord, as we look at it today, would you do something in our hearts, something within us as a church today that lifts our eyes to see all that you dream the church to be? Something that, would you do something within us that that inspires faith that the picture we see then is still possible today because you are the same then as you are now. So Lord, we ask today for your, your vision of what this looks like in our lives today. We ask today for faith to believe that we should still be chasing this same picture that you've inspired in your scriptures, we ask that you would just do something within us that would make us a little bit more the church you dream us to be. So Lord, we submit to you. We surrender our wills to yours. Would you speak? Would you teach? Would you do what you desire to do in our midst? And we pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Amen. Now, we're going to come back to this picture. What I want us to wrestle with today, and as I said, if you've been around church for a while, you'd be familiar with this picture. And we, we read it all the time. I want us to key in. We, we've been looking at this series around the table. And one of the things you can't get around is that when you look at the early church, the first followers of Jesus, their life seems to center around this idea twice in these few verses we see of breaking bread together. And breaking bread in their homes. Now, so what I want us to begin to unpack to start with is this phrase, breaking bread. When it says, we probably, we kind of get devoted to the apostles' teaching. We, we kind of get, you know, prayer. We, we get even to a degree fellowship. But the fellowship and the breaking bread, these two ideas, they, they are intertwined. And I think when we wrap our minds a little bit, if we find ourselves, let me pause for a second. If we find ourselves wondering... Why do we not experience some of the dynamics we see at play here? Like this deep, radical, wild fellowship that they experienced. Maybe we should ask, you know, is there something we're missing in some of those ways they were living out what it meant to be the church? And one of those things we see them devoted to is the breaking of bread. And, and, and as we've seen, the breaking of bread, uh, this, this speaks to table. It speaks to eating uh, meals together. It speaks to all these things. And maybe as we've seen the table and this importance all the way through the scriptures, maybe there's something in this for us to wrap our minds around. What does this mean for us today? I want to start by just unpacking this phrase, breaking bread. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean uh, that they were practicing communion, if you will, as, as we know it? Uh, and if you've been around our church while, well, you know, we... we we take uh, bread that's unleavened bread, so it looks like a cracker, and we break a part of that, and we eat it, and we take a, a small cup of juice, and those things remind us of the body and blood of Christ. Were they doing that the same way that we do it when they broke bread? I, I want us to see, here's what breaking bread looked like for them. An easiest way to picture uh, what it means here by breaking bread is to actually look at three other places where this phrase is used uh, in the book of Luke. 
So this book of Acts, a little background, a little background. The book of Acts is written by a guy named Luke. Uh, Luke also wrote the book of the Bible that we know as the Gospel of Luke. These were history accounts. He was a guy who wanted to write, here's the history of who Jesus is and what he did. And he wrote kind of a two-part history. One we call the Gospel of Luke. There's all that Jesus was doing. Here's the accounts of his life. And then he wrote a second volume that we call Acts. This is what started to happen through his early followers and in the early church. So, Luke, when he uses this phrase in his history, part two of Jesus, he's already used it on three distinct occasions. He's, the, he's kind of the writer who really uses this phrase, breaking bread. Here's the first time he uses it. There's a, a point at which Jesus is out and teaching a crowd of people, 5,000 people. And he's teaching them, it tells us, in, in, uh, uh, that about the kingdom of God. He's telling them all about the kingdom of God and what it's all about. And he's teaching so long, and there's this whole crowd, and nobody has anything to eat. Nobody thought to bring, you know, a packed lunch with them except one little boy. And he brought with him uh, five loaves of bread and two fish. So Jesus is like, hey, bring me what we got. This little boy, he had that. So he takes that, and he tells the disciples, all right, we're going we're gonna to feed this crowd of 5,000. And so he, says, so he says, just bring me what we got. And we get this great phrase where Jesus is about to feed them. And in Luke uh, chapter 9, 16, it says this. It says, and taking the five loaves, five loaves of bread, and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Now I want you to see, so here's the first time Luke uses this phrase about breaking bread. They're up on this hill. He's been teaching about the kingdom. It says he takes the five loaves and he, and he, he so he takes them. He prays a blessing over them and then he breaks them and then he gives them. He took, he prayed, he broke, he gave. This is what he does. Now, the amazing thing is what happens next. So all the people are fed. There's enough for everybody. And they have this almost like this Jesus, you know, it's like how to host a party Jesus style. Invite 5,000 of your closest friends to the nearest mountain and then proceed to break bread and turn it into enough food for the entire crowd to eat. So they didn't have just kind of like a little meal and everybody, they took like the five pieces of bread and everybody had a, a, a small enough bit that they broke it into five. No, no, no. He broke it. There was plenty of bread. Everyone ate until they were full. And there was even more food left over. It is this big feast on a hill with Jesus as the host. He takes bread and he prays over it and he breaks bread and he gives it to them. What happens next, actually, in that story, as Luke records, the next thing that he puts there is actually he records a moment immediately after that where uh, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, Jesus says to all his followers, who do you say I am? And Peter, in that moment, says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And Luke's kind of making a little bit of a point for us that it was at, at, it's, it's like we see this meal happen and we see a distinct kind of, the next idea he speaks into is this shows who Jesus is, the Messiah, the Christ. Now, the next time Luke uses this phrase uh, is in the story we looked at last week, which is the first supper, as we'll call it today. Jesus' last supper with the disciples, but the first of a whole new kind of supper. And in that meal, Jesus, of course, is Passover meal, and he takes his bread. They're, they're eating, and, and as they're in the midst of this meal, look what happens again. Here's the, the verse, Luke twenty two nineteen. 19. It says, and he 
took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this, eat this, in remembrance of me. Now, do you notice there's a couple little similarities to our, our last little snapshot, isn't there? Once again, we see Jesus take the bread and pray over the bread and then break the bread and then give it to them. He took, he prayed, he broke, and he gave. And what does he say? He says, this bread is my body. He reveals to them, I am the Messiah. I am, I am the Christ. I am the great rescuer. Here's, so, so we see this exact same phrase, exact same pattern. He takes it, he prays over it, he breaks it, and he, Jesus, gives this bread. Now, the third time we see in Luke's story, and in, in Luke, in this particular account of that story, he also says to his followers there, I won't eat this again with you until the kingdom comes. And then we see something really unique happen that Jesus, of course, after that meal, uh, that very uh, weekend, goes to the cross and, and, and he is crucified publicly and then is put in the tomb. But of course, Sunday comes and he is alive and, he, and the tomb is empty. And word begins to spread that the tomb is empty. In fact, there's a couple guys and they're walking along this road uh, to a place called Emmaus. And they're walking along and they're trying to make sense now of all this, of everything that's happened. Because they were starting to believe that Jesus is the Christ, is the Messiah, but then he was crucified, and so they don't understand that doesn't fit with what they were expecting. But then these stories are beginning to go around that the women went there and the tomb was empty, and so actually it seems like he's alive. But these guys haven't seen Jesus, and so they're just kind of walking along puzzled. And as they're walking along, Jesus kind of just rocks up right beside them. And it says that they, they were kept from kind of seeing or understanding who he was. So it's like in some way Jesus is there, but they can't kind of see who he is. And so Jesus sort of starts walking along with them, just kind of, you know, hey, why the, why the glum faces, hey? You know, and these guys, they tell him, oh, you, you don't know? You don't know what's happened? Like, we don't get this. And Jesus, they still don't get who he is. They still in some way can't see who he is. Jesus begins to explain to them. Uh, and it says, looking at all the, 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 the law and the prophets, the old scriptures, he starts to explain how this was always the plan. The Messiah was going to always have to come and suffer and die and that this is what God wanted. And, and so he starts explaining the scriptures to them. He starts explaining God and how he works. And they're walking along so long, it starts to get to be uh, getting dark. And these two guys on the road say, you know what? And as, as they wouldn't come, they say, hey, you know what? It's getting dark. Why don't you come stay with us? And so they extend him kind of hospitality. Hey, you know, you're, you're a stranger. Why don't you come stay in our house? And Jesus for a moment's like, no, 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 no. I got other, other places to go, other stuff to do. And they say, no, 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 please come stay with us. So he says, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll stay with you. So they invite Jesus into their house. And then they're, they're going to feed him dinner, stay home. But something really unique happens. Jesus, all of a sudden, he's at the table with them. And he suddenly goes from being the guest to being the host. And watch what he does. It says that he, we've got this uh, Luke 24, verse 30. It says, when he was at the table with them, I was sitting around the table to eat, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were open, and they recognized him, 
and he disappeared from their sight. Resurrected Jesus is cheeky. <laughs> he's just, like, honestly, he's like, you, I'd be far out. Like, man, you know, they, he walks with them, and they breaks the bread, and what happens? Just what we saw on the mountainside, just what was happening. He, at the, at the first supper, the last supper, and just what's happening here, their eyes are open, and they come to understand Jesus is the Messiah and the Lord. And then he's gone, just like that. Now here's what, do you you see this? It's just kind of helpful to realize this. Every one of those bread-breaking meals, we just saw the exact same thing happen, didn't we? He takes it, he prays over it, he breaks it, he gives it. Why is that important? Why is that helpful? Because when we get to Acts 2, Luke, who wrote that, wrote this, And he's just going to say, what did they do? They broke bread in their homes. And he knows that we've also read his volume one history, that this bread breaking is no ordinary bread breaking. These people weren't just having dinner together in their homes. They were breaking bread, having a meal that was revealing Christ for who he is. That they were having a meal that just as uh, on the mountain or in the Last Supper or there in the home of these two travelers, just as that breaking of bread that represents Christ took place in a meal in those contexts, it was taking place in the homes of his early believers. That they would eat together. Not just sit and, 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 and just crackers and juice, but in the context of a meal Just as we saw before, they would eat with glad and sincere hearts and they would break bread together and they would take the bread and they would remember this is Christ's body given for us. This cup, this is his blood that has sealed the the new covenant. And they would celebrate the Lord's Supper in one another's homes. In fact, so much it tells us they devoted themselves to it. And they they would meet to break bread in their homes. Now, why, why does this... Important. Why am I taking you through all this? It's not just to go, well, isn't this clever, that. But because this tells us, this speaks to what the Lord's Supper is meant to be about. If if we are going to say, how do we celebrate this the way those who first followed Christ celebrate it? We've got to get in touch with what they were doing. And what they were doing was they were celebrating it in homes. And the natural question, if you're like me, and I, would, I know there'd be many of you who at some point, if you've walked with Christ for a long time and, and been around church and you've read you know, passages like this and you've read about the church in Corinth and the problems that were happening there, with community, there, there's a part of you that ends up reading those things and going, why does our expression of this bread breaking look so radically different to the way the first followers did it? I mean, they... They weren't just, you know, here's a, 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 a tiny, you know, bit of this, this, you know, bread, this unleavened bread, this cracker. It's not just like take this little tiny bit and take this little bit of juice and, and do that and just kind of a, a quiet moment. They were eating meals in homes and in the context with glad and sincere hearts. And, and, and you can't help but sort of go, why, why, why does? I mean, does that, is that a question you've ever wondered? Why? Well, I'm glad you asked. Now, do, do, we have some, uh, do we have some history fans here? Who likes history? Who, do we have some hands? We have, I've been pleased. I've been pleased with the amount of history lovers that, that we have. So some of you who didn't raise your hands, well, you'll get history anyway today. 
I, I want to just, you know, because I think this is helpful. If our vision is to say, how do we always stay true to what we see the early churches? And if we find between the way we practice some things and how they did great discrepancy, we should look at how that happened. And the point is not to say, well, we must have, you know, we just stuffed it all up or anything like that. There may be very good reasons uh, why we do things. But, but what we want to do is say, what did this meal mean? How did they celebrate it? And therefore, how do we make sure, now we don't live in the same culture and context, a lot of things that are different in our world from theirs, but how do we make sure that in the ways we celebrate, we do not lose the meaning? So here's what kind of happened, and I think it's kind of helpful to see. You know, for the first hundred or so years, clearly, what we would call communion, what some would call the Eucharist, this meal that Jesus gave us, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, and communion, keep in mind, is just another translation of the word fellowship, which is the Greek word koinonia, it, it, when, when they would celebrate this. So for the first 100, 150 years maybe, uh, it was always celebrated like we see in Acts chapter 2. It was clearly happening in homes as part of a larger meal. And that larger meal was so beautiful and powerful because it brought together and united rich and poor. It united slave owner and slave. It united everyone around this meal and around that table. And so it was an incredible uh, thing that was really, and in so many ways by its very existence, turning uh, the culture on its head and demonstrating a brand new type of community that had never been seen before. The kind of community where people, when it doesn't, if you are rich and you have something and someone's in need, then you share it with them. You are, have things in common, in koina. You are sharing this deep thought. So this is how it kind of works. So, and the, the centerpiece of this, what brought them together was this eating around the table, sharing food, sharing food around the table. And, and in that, breaking bread, doing this meal in such a way that reveals and shows Jesus as Lord and Messiah. So it's taking place in homes. And, and what we see in that first 150 years, 100, 150 years, there were sort of two environments in which the church is operating. We saw that in Acts chapter 2. There were sort of two spheres where, where they seemed to be meeting, right? One was the temple courts. Now the temple courts was the only place kind of big enough for all the believers to gather. Uh, on the day the church kind of came into existence, there was like thousands of people and they're being added daily. So when they wanted to get the whole church together at that point, they go to the temple courts. The apostles likely would teach there. They pray there. They do these kinds of things. The other arena they were living out faith and what it means to be the church was in, as we saw in Acts 2, the home. Right? Makes sense? So doing certain things, kind of big group in the temple courts, doing certain things, breaking bread together in home. So this is how it seems to happen kind of the first 100, 150 years. Now, one of the things that starts to shift a little bit at some point, difficult to tell, is the part of the meal where the bread is broken and, and is the body of Christ and the cup is taken that reminds us of the blood of Christ, new covenant, that part gets taken out of the meal and the, the believers begin to celebrate that in the morning and they start to have what they call these agape love feasts in the evening. And so the love feast looked a lot more like the Acts 2 picture where you would eat and you would share food and you'd do all these things. But for, uh, you know, this would be a very abbreviated history, and, but they decided to start shifting that to the morning. So the two got separated a little bit, but you still very much had this table dimension of what it meant to be the church and the people of God. Now around, things
things begin to shift over the centuries, and something happens in around the fourth century where Constantine, and some of you, if you know your history, generally speaking, you'll have heard of this. Constantine was the Roman Empire who converts to Christianity, and what he does is he changes something that had never before been experienced. For its first three, four hundred years, Christians were, uh, they were more marginalized. They had to meet in homes. They, they, were, they were not, they were kind of looked down upon in so many ways by the, the culture, and it was not conducive to them. So they had to meet in homes. Constantine makes Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, which means all of a sudden they now have the ability to acquire land, to acquire property. It becomes all kind of tied up with the empire because it's the official religion. And so now for the first time, the, the major arena where church life is happening begins to shift from the home and the table to the building. And not just the building, but the focal point of the, the, the cathedrals and, and what ultimately come to be called the churches that they would build. What, what you'll see, you go through Europe and, and see some of these old, old uh, places. Generally, what is it? The focal point of it is not a table, but an altar. And the altar emphasizes an important part of the meal that Jesus gave us. It emphasizes sacrifice. It emphasizes that Jesus died for us. But it is not the sum total of what this meal spoke of. And as this shift takes place, as church goes from being something that was happening in homes and around tables, that table is gradually replaced more and more by an altar. And the dynamic of what was experienced in the early church begins to shift. Now, throughout, this is the fourth century. Over the centuries since then, between then and now, there have been plenty of times where different people have, have brought about what we call reformation and said, no, no, let's try and get back. Let's go back to the picture. Let's try and get back there. And different movements and different things have happened to try and say, you know what, we, th- there, there are all kinds of ways we as Christ followers sometimes kind of go this way or go that, but let's always try and be a people who are going, no, let's try and get back to the core of it. So there are all kinds of different groups that have always tried to say, how, how do we return here? But for so many different reasons, more than we can go in today, uh, that form has been very, um, very strong in its influence. The form of, of people, I mean, how, like, do you know the early followers today, we will say, uh, you know, we will call a building a church building. What's that over there? We'll say that's a church. The early followers could never have conceived of that very sentence. They just couldn't. The idea that we would ever, and we're always working against this. We're always trying to call this place facilities. We're always trying to call it different things because the building's not a church. But that view is so prominent, isn't it? So the question we have to ask is how do we end up shifting from, you know, an, an altar how, how, this is kind of how we did go from, from a, a table to an altar. And with that came that when you emphasize the sacrifice, you also lose some of that joy and gladness that was there for the early followers because we're only celebrating the sacrifice. And it feels like more of a, a solemn moment than the bread breaking in homes that we saw in Acts 2. Now, one of the really cool things that, that happens, as I said, throughout history, there's always been people who... Um, have sought to say, how do we constantly go back? How do we constantly try to reshape our practices? Because it's not about, and, and I'm not in any way saying some of the ways we celebrate it and, and churches have celebrated for centuries, like, wow, that was wrong. We really completely ruined everything. Not at all. The great thing about the, the Christian faith and, and about the scriptures we're given is that they're not incredibly rigid. Part of the reason the Lord's Supper is celebrated so differently no matter where you go among Christ's followers, is because there's really not a lot of instructions given about exactly how to do it. 
There's not a lot given to us about do it like this or do it this often or it's just, we're just like, here's a meal Jesus gave us. And what I think we need to ask is what, it's not so much say, well, what should be the new form? Not at all. But how, when you change form, sometimes meaning is lost in the process. And is it possible that we've lost some of the important meanings of this meal because of the form with which we practice it? You see, one of the movements that began to happen in, in the 18th century, in the 1700s, in Scotland, uh, there, were, uh, there began to be this kind of move to say, again, as always happens in history, how do we get back to this? And they began to celebrate communion. Uh, they began to, to have like this communion fair, it was sometimes called, or a communion festival. And the way they began to say, celebrate communion was they would line up. These, they said, man, it was supposed to be a table, not an altar. So they started to line up long banquet-type tables. And they would do this once a year. They would celebrate the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table. And they would gather at these long tables. And they would, it was set like a meal like a banquet, but the only thing that was there was the bread and the cup. And they would eat it like a meal, only it was nothing but the bread and the cup. And not a little tiny cup, a cup. And, and so these, these kind of new expressions began to kind of spread. And they began to turn into like these three and four day events. And that's when they, they especially called them communion festivals. And so they would, and this then made its way over into the U.S., now, this is in the early 1800s. It's kind of frontier land, prairie land. We're still in history lesson mode, if you're wondering. We're still there. We're still in history. We're still good. Liking it? We're good? We're tracking? So, it's 1800s. It's 1801. These festivals are taking place in a number of places. What they would do, they have three or four days. The first day, you would come, and people would just fast all day, preparing to take the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table. So, they would begin to fast all day. The second day, they, they would begin uh, to have preaching and teaching and worship. And these things would be going on as they're preparing. And then, so this was Thursday was fasting. Friday, preaching, teaching, church, things like that. Uh, worship services. Saturday was a day for the Lord's Supper. And they would all gather at these long tables, long tables, and, and have this, you know, feast of the Lord's Supper, but with just the bread and the cup. And then on Sunday, they would have a whole other day of kind of singing songs to God and worshiping and, and doing all these things. Now, these festivals were happening uh, lots of different places. And they had spread to kind of frontier prairie land of Kentucky, which was one of those kind of frontier uh, lands at the time. And there was a little town called Cane Ridge, very small town. Uh, and there, there was uh, a, a Presbyterian minister who was going to hold one of these communion festivals in Cane Ridge. And all these people were going to come and camp and they were going to have one of these festivals. Now, uh, usually when they would have one of these festivals, there might be a few dozen people. There might be a few hundred people. If it was huge, there'd be a few hundred people. And this guy, uh, William Barton Stone, he was holding this particular communion festival, only something just kind of happened at the Cane Ridge communion festival. And by the time the four days was over, not dozens, not hundreds, but 20,000 people in one of the most well-documented revivals to ever take place in the kind of pioneer era of, of the U.S. God's spirit just pours out. It's just straight up revival. For years afterward, they said people would go to meetings like this and say, Lord, make it like Cane Ridge. And so there's this incredible outpouring of God's spirit. And out of that very meeting came a new group of people, followers of Christ, who said, what we want to dedicate ourselves to is restoring the New Testament practice of what it means to be the church. And Stone, who had held this, 
ended up uh, kind of getting to know another guy who was doing ministry like this on the East Coast named Campbell, and they began what was then called the Stone Campbell uh, Movement, which would one day become known as the Churches of Christ. And we, if you're new around here, are part of this movement called the Churches of Christ that was given birth to at this revival that flowed out of a communion festival in Cane Ridge in 1801. Now, I say all that to say this. If this, and if you've been here last few weeks, you'll notice. If we look through the whole of the scriptures and we see that God created people for fellowship, koinonia, deep connection with himself. And he put them in a garden. And he said, and here's all this food. I want you to eat it. I want to know you walk with you, be close to you. But we kind of turned, went our own way and things, that fellowship was broken. That connection was broken. And God says, look, I'm going to make provision. And there was going to be sacrifices. And the sacrifice will be a part of helping restore our relationship. And after you bring the sacrifice, one of those things that constantly happened in these covenants was then, afterward, you have a meal and you eat together in the presence of God. And then this is kind of going on and on. It all points to this time when God, the great God who created the whole universe, steps into this world as one of us, as a human being, and walks around in the person of Jesus. And what's he spend most of his time doing? Sitting down at tables, gathering with people, restoring that fellowship. And he invites anyone to his table, and he, he spends so much time with people, and he invites everyone. And so other people get a little bit like, man, I don't even know if you should be having fellowship, table, fellowship with those people. And they're a little put off, but that's what he spends his time doing, getting around the table with people. And then just before he's about to go to the cross and rise again, he sits down around the table, and he says, here's what I'm going to leave you. Do this one thing. Eat this meal, this bread, this cup, remembrance of me. And then he goes to the cross and he rises from the dead and he says, I have secured new life for you. There's a new covenant. There's a new deal. Put your faith in me. And the kingdom is open for all who would come. And, and, and what happens? He even, even before he ascended, he comes back and he walks with some people and he says, we're going to sit around the table and these two strangers and he takes bread and he breaks it and he tells them and, and their eyes are open. They see him for who he is. And so he, there's this meal and it's given to us. And then what do his early followers do? What do we see them doing? They devote themselves to the apostles teaching. We've got to be committed to the worthy apostle. What helps us understand who God is, and what it's all about. And they devote themselves to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread, to sharing this meal with one another. And it tells us that that early church, as they did this with glad and sincere hearts, not with somber faces and, and kind of, you know, they, the, as they celebrated with glad and sincere hearts, with all the joy of all the festivals that were part of the people of Israel's history and right traveling through, with all the gladness and the sincerity of heart, they would celebrate this meal. And it says they enjoyed the favor of all the people. All the people looking on like, man, what? These people, we just know this is good. And the Lord adds daily to their number. People are like, let me have a seat at that table. If this is what we see, then why and how do we get back to becoming a people of the table? And you know what? I don't have an answer if you're saying, you know, so what are you saying, Dean? What are you saying? I, here's what I'm saying is I think we have to ask the question if our expression of this meal that is clearly so central and such an incredible gift to the followers of Jesus Christ, if our expression looks so radically different, 
How do we make sure that lost, that we do not lose the meaning and the power of what this meal is meant to be? Is something being lost? And how do we recover it? How do we restore it? How do we, how do we bring that back? In fact, I want to give you three questions. If you can hang with me for a minute here. Three questions I think we need to ask. I don't know all the answers and to say, here's exactly how we'll do this, but I think we have to wrestle with these three questions if we're going to be faithful to what we see uh, in the scriptures. And the first question is this. How do we, how do we as the people of God restore the, this, this focus from altar to table? When it comes to celebrating the Lord's Supper, communion, uh, the breaking of bread, our focus tends to be on an altar. The Lord's Supper speaks to so many different just perspectives and, and so many different realities. But our celebration of it sometimes seems to focus on only one thing, the sacrifice. It's this altar focus. When the table is meant to speak, you know, for the new early church, because they gather around the table, it spoke of the, it spoke of like the breaking down of economic barriers. It spoke to the reality of generous hearts where you shared food with those who had no need. It spoke to the joy of the kingdom yet to come. The table was supposed to also be One day we're going to sit around a big banquet table with Jesus and right now we've got a taste of that right here. There's so much richness. How do we shift our focus from the altar to the table? How do we shift if the primary arena for how people gathered for that first 100, 150 years was not around an altar but around a table? How do we shift our expression to to capture that, to recapture that, to restore that? Here's a second shift I think we need to think about. How do we shift from when we celebrate the Lord's Supper From the idea of celebrating it almost like a funeral to celebrating it like a celebration. The Lord's Supper speaks of Jesus' death, but it speaks of it in the context of his resurrection. And so often we celebrate the Lord's Supper like it's still Good Friday. We celebrate, we're remembering, but we come to it and it's somber and it's quiet and don't, don't say anything and let's all just be quiet because don't you, because we know how, listen, it is It is incredibly serious. It's never something to become flippant about, but we celebrate it like a funeral when it's meant to be a celebration. We are supposed to celebrate all of this like Resurrection Sunday happened. It's supposed to speak to the future. Do you know, I think one of the great challenges see so often uh, with, with people as they follow Christ, it's a little diversion for a second, but this is just so often I see people who are following Christ and something bad happens in their life. I mean, really bad, tragic, illness, bad things, you know, they happen. And so often, for many, that becomes an absolutely derailing event in their life and in their walk with Christ. And so often, I think part of that is because we have lost touch with the orientation that the table gives us, that the banquet is yet to come. And we taste it now, but we live our lives knowing no matter what, one day I'm going to sit at the great banquet where God wipes every tear from their eyes and the dwelling of God is with people and all things are made new. And the table is meant to speak to that reality. So that whether in good times or bad, we come to the table and say, I know this is a taste of what is yet to come. And we celebrate that with joy. The last shift I think we need to wrestle with is how do we make this shift from the table being an individual experience to once again being about fellowship. For the early church, it was what, it was a sign of their unity. It was a sign of their commonness. It was a sign of the sharing. Communion meant that we commune deeply, our spirits mingle with God and with one another. 
There is a fellowship. It is so prominent. Our great challenge is for us, celebrating communion so often becomes the most individualistic thing we do. And we say, this is a moment for me and God. And I, I want to be quiet and sit between me and God alone. And believe me, is there a time to sit quietly and reflect alone with God? Absolutely. Absolutely. Critical. If that is not a part of your walk with, with the Lord, if, if you never have those quiet moments alone with him, you're missing something. But that's not what this table was designed to do. A table. Have you ever sat at a table with people and just thought, let's all look down? Let's just be quiet? The table does not speak to that. The table speaks to joy. The table speaks to looking at one another. The table speaks to speaking. The table speaks to, you know, all those things. We saw at the Last Supper, you know, where Jesus' disciples are talking so much, they get in a fight with one another at the Lord's table. The table is never meant to be this individualistic moment. And, and, and in so many ways, our practice of it has made it about, we're all together in a room as individuals, having a quiet moment. How does it restore and how does it speak into fellowship, koinonia, deep connection with one another? Now, once again, I, I don't know the exact answer to this question, but I do know this. How do we begin to shift some of these things? We are missing, I think, when we, if we look at some of the dynamism of the church that we see here in Acts, and if we wonder why are we missing some of that, I cannot help but think we are missing some of those things that they got. Where's our joy? Where's our glad hearts? Where's our celebration? Where's people lining up to say, man, give me a seat at that table? Where's our experience of the Lord's adding to their number daily? And is it possible that part of it is, I mean, this meal has got so much that it speaks into what it means to be a follower of Christ and so much that it witnesses and proclaims to the world. How loud does it shout to say, no matter how rough things get in my life, I look forward to a great feast. And it brings me joy here and now as I sit at the table with my Savior and with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's wrestle with this. Let's, wherever we go, let's become a people of the table. Let's figure this out together. Now, here's what we're going to do today. Today, I'm going to invite the team to come back up. Today, you can see we've got a table. And, uh, and what we're going to do today, and listen, I know, again, this is not going to now look exactly like what we saw in Acts chapter 2. Please hear me on this. It's not about trying to create a new legalism around make sure we do it this way or that way. Our challenge is to say, how do we make sure we restore the meaning, all that we saw? How do we work hard at that in the ways we celebrate it? How we're going to do that today is we are going to, we are going to celebrate it. And in a moment, we're going to come, we're going to take the bread. We're going to take the cup. The ushers are coming down here. They're going to hold up the cups just here on the side. And during a, a song that we're going to sing together, you could just, you can sit if you want and just kind of relax. And, but we're just going to give everybody a chance to come and take the bread and take the cup. And if you want, and you know what? You don't have to be quiet. <laughs> you don't have to be quiet. If you want to talk to somebody in the next few minutes, talk to them. If you want to share something, if you, you can come and you can take the bread and the cup right here. And I encourage you, don't even take it to your seat. If you want, you can take it right here and then leave the cup right back where you got it. Or you might want to grab your family or a couple friends and go say, hey, let's just take it together over here. You can stop and pray with somebody. This is, not, this is a moment for us to celebrate that Jesus is here in our midst 
as we gather around this table. In fact, I want to read you one more verse. This comes from Revelation chapter 3. And you guys have done so well. I know uh, we, we've been talking a while, but this is big stuff. And, and I want to read you this last couple of verses here. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Jesus said these words. Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person. I will join them at the table. I will eat with that person and they with me. Can I tell you something? When we eat this meal, Jesus is here and present. He says, I stand at the door and knock and all I want is to be reconnected to you. He knocks at the door of the heart of each of our lives. He says, I don't want to be distant and far off. I stand at the door and knock and all you have to do is say, yes, Lord. I open that door. Come into my life. Even as I eat this bread is a declaration that Jesus, I welcome you into my life. As I drink this cup, my faith and trust is in you. It's in your blood. It's in the kingdom that is yet to come in fullness. And when we do that, we know that he is here eating with us. Wow. I want to invite you to stand up. And just as we see Jesus pray before they took bread, I want to just take a piece of this bread. And we're going to look to the heavens. We say, Lord, we thank you for your body. And we thank you for your blood poured out for us. And we thank you that you have invited us to your table. We thank you for the banquet that is yet to come. We thank you that we can have a taste of your kingdom here and now. And I ask that, Lord, today, as we take this bread that speaks of your death and resurrection, as we take this cup that speaks of your blood poured out for us and the new life you offer to each one of us, would you impart more of that new life to us? Would you impart more of your spirit in this place and the joy and the celebration and the gladness that we see in those early believers? Would you release it in our midst? Lord, would you be remaking us into that same dynamic force gathered around your table that took the good news of all you've done into this world? Lord, we thank you that you are here among us. You are here now. May we meet with you this morning here at your table. It is in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.